In order to save a village, Indiana Jones must recover a sacred stone from human-sacrificing cultists. Special guest Bruce Edwards joins us to chat about covers for book reports, Lau Shea's insurance fraud, and this movie's most realistic character. Listen for Fortune and Glory, and to find out if Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom stands the test of time. James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with a glut Alan says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Alan have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Test of Time. My name is Alan Noah, and I've got two friends with me today. First, my co-host, James Brief. Hello, everyone. This is James Brief, the co-host of the Test of Time podcast. Thanks for that great introduction, Al. Anytime. And joining us back on the show is our friend Bruce Edwards. Bruce, welcome back. Wow, thanks for having me. I don't have such a professional-sounding intro as james i'm jealous oh well i mean you are a guest on the test of time i mean that's pretty special question mark uh welcome to the test of time i am bruce edwards (laughs) you know i'm trying to emote like a 1950s dj it's time for some beach boys take it away although shouldn't we do like 1935 because of Mm, the movie mm-hmm. today. Good point. Good point. Well, I'm really glad that you're here, Bruce. You were last here in 2018. So it's wow. been a long time. You joined us to talk about Halloween, the 1978 Halloween, not to be confused with the like 17 other movies that are also called Halloween uh, and Night of the Living Dead. I believe you requested to come back for something that was not a horror movie we were gonna have you on to talk about uh, the long kiss goodnight. Oh my god! Right, the movie. scheduling didn't work out, and I felt terrible. It was bad timing all around. Yes, but I know that you love Indiana Jones, so I'm really excited that you're here. More than my own mother. <laughs> Take that, Bruce's mom. <laughs> I hope she's not listening. But whatever, it's fine. I'm really glad that you're here. I'm really glad that you're back. We were emailing back and forth about doing this episode, and you mentioned that not only do you love Indiana Jones, but that you read the Indiana Jones novels, or or some of them. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I own more than I've read. I brought them upstairs here, and I'm just going to put them on the table for us. Flop. Obviously, this is an audio format, and our listeners can't see. What is that? The nine. nine. I own nine of these books, but downstairs on the bookshelf, I have many, 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 many Star Wars books. Yes. And I've really only read a handful of them. I got to be honest. You've read the Timothy Zahn trilogy. Yes, and I think that might have been it. Okay, that's really the only one you have to read. Right. But these nine Indiana Jones books... I've read all of them. Oh. I bought them and I read them. And I know that there's more than these nine. I believe they went up to 12. But what I remember is that the first six are written by an author named Rob McGregor. And those six are connected. They have like characters that show up in one and then come back in the Mm. next one. They're different. You know, they're each one tells its own contained story but they have more of a through line and then there was an author named martin calden who wrote the seventh and eighth and a different guy who wrote the ninth and then they kind of were going off the rails i thought and i i didn't pick up the last two that was actually three that was actually the first question i was going to ask you were these all written by the same person because um you had series when we were kids like choose your own adventure and those wildly varied in the quality um some of them were written by really good authors like rl stein the guy mm-hmm. who wound up writing all of the goosebumps and a fear street all of those kind of uh, books some were not so good he wrote See, a few indiana jones 
Choose Your Own Adventure, R.L. Stein. Really? Right. And um, same thing with the Star Wars books. There were some authors that were very good and generally went with the authors, uh, not necessarily the storyline, really. I mean, of course, the storyline had to be good, but it's funny because Indiana Jones is the perfect setting for a series of books because you know it's timeless you don't have to worry about uh, you know the uh, elephant of the room of the fourth and fifth indiana jones films you have an aging uh, main star so you have to incorporate that into the film but with books you don't have to do that bruce you said you'd read some of these do any of these titles here look familiar oh god yes uh specifically the genesis deluge mm-hmm. i wrote a book report when i was I don't know, 11 or 12, I guess. Really? Something like that. I spent a lot of time on the cover to the book report. <laughs> Was that a thing in school? You made covers to book reports or did I only do that? We did that where you'd make like the book jackets. So yeah. You kind of have to write the summary like a regular book jacket. But no, but I mean, I like drew like a cover for it. like Right, right. You, you decorated something like yes. that. Yes. I don't think I did, but I was not an artistic kid. Anyway, my teacher loved it, the whole thing. It was a, it was a moment of pride. Okay. And I loved the book, and I remember the book. You know, I must have read it two or three times when I was a kid. Uh, it's the one that I remember the most, although not heavy on the action. I really don't remember specifics. All I know is that that was the one about Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark, not the Ark of the Covenant. Not, right, the, not the Ark of the Covenant. Yes. As a person with the last name Noah, of course, I... Very nice. I like that, yeah. But, I mean, I like having them on the bookshelf, and I'm glad I was able to take them off of the bookshelf. The covers now. are gorgeous. Look at these covers. Yeah, I mean, like, Salah's on that one, and... Uh, I really do think that the first six were good. I think Indy was married at some point in in these. And then um, his wife died, I think. These take place before the movies, if I'm remembering right. Uh, I think they take place before, during, after. I don't think that they're necessarily... Seven Veils is the one I'm actually currently reading. This guy right here. You're reading it now? Yeah. It's it's not a legacy thing for me. It's (laughs) It's an ongoing interest for sure. It says, Indy's a prisoner of a tribe who can control his mind. Ooh, okay. And this is way before Crystal Skull, too. So I'm not up to that part yet, but she's a good good foil for him. But let's get into Temple of Doom, the movie that brought us here today. I also do just want to point out for our listeners who can't see you, Bruce, you are wearing a t-shirt that says Lauche Air Freight, which is... Chef's kiss exquisite. Come on. Well done. Well done. I love this shirt. It is a good looking shirt. Uh, All right. But Temple of Doom is a prequel to the previous film, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Taking place in 1935, an archaeology deal gone bad leads Indiana Jones, his colleague Short Round, and singer Willie Scott to a small Indian village. After learning that an evil cult stole the village's children and their sacred stone, Indy and his friends head to Pankot Palace to investigate. There, they discover that the thuggy cult is still active and performing human sacrifices. (gasps) That's right. The cult has the stolen Shankara stones, and the village's kidnapped children, who are working as slaves. Indy, Short Round, and Willie are captured, but they are able to rescue the children and recover the lost stone. They return it to the village, and Indy learns that there's more to archaeology than fortune and glory. Uh, spoiler alert. Guys, what's up? Well, this is the beginning hey. part where we, we do a plot synopsis. Know, so, I'm just kidding. Okay. And normally I would ask you if this was a big hit, but I know that it was. This was a big deal at the box office, right? Well, fortune and glory were certainly obtained at the box office. Wow. Okay. Wow. Right there, that was right there. slick. That yes. was... Well, the film was very well received uh, when it came out. Uh, it opened at number one on May 23rd, 1984. It opened up on Memorial Day weekend, so $25 million Friday through Sunday, but $33 million over the Memorial Day weekend, which is huge. Well, 84 money, what is that, like $220 million now? Yeah, I mean, it made a huge amount of money. And more important than just making money that first weekend, it made $25 million or $33 million but it made $153 million domestically, $333 million worldwide. So it had a lot of staying power. And it was in the top five of 1984. We have reviewed four out of five of these films. We'll get to number five. You can probably guess what the number one film of 1984 is, Al. 
Is that Ghostbusters? That's correct. Oh, okay. Yes. Right. Uh, coming in number two is uh, Temple of Doom. Okay. And number three, it is a movie both terrifying and adorable. Gremlins. That's correct. It's probably the only film that can be described as terrifying and adorable. It's not terrifying. It is scary. It, it, it is scary. I mean, to a kid. Yes, it is. Or to a 41-year-old named Samantha Noah. My sister's still afraid of it. Wow. Yeah, I know. That's a story for another day. Well, you know what? The, the, the stuff in the house can be kind of scary when the gremlins and the mom and the <laughs> things and the happening. You know, that, that's scary-ish. I guess. I, I guess. guess. Number five earned an Academy Award nomination for an Asian actor. I, I, I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure if you're going to get this one. I don't um, know. Give me a little one more. one of your favorite films ever. It was a dynamite performance. 1984. You might say he was the best around for this role. Oh, okay. So you're talking about the Karate Kid. Correct. 1984, Cameron. number four. And uh, number five film of 1984, uh, we have not reviewed this film, uh, but the, one of the main characters is named Mahoney. Police Academy? That's right. It was the fifth highest grossing wow. film. Well, that would explain why there's six yes. of them. It beat Footloose, Star Trek Three, Romancing the Stones, Splash. We do have... One of the top grossing films uh, of 1984. As a side note, if you want to put it on the list for the podcast. I don't think you've done it yet. Tango and Cash? We have not. Mm. For a number of reasons, but one of the interesting facts about Tango and Cash, it was the last movie to be released in the 80s. So not only is it the height of 80s action movies, it's also the actual last Okay. 80s, movie. 80s movie. Yes. Too. Wow. That's anyway, call. sorry. Great call. I actually have you on our list. Tango and Cash with Bruce Edwards, right here on my list. Look at that. So there you go. You have Dipsies. All right. It's official. <laughs> but I was also going to say, for the success of this movie, also helped to usher in the current, still era of PG 13 movies. It created the PG 13 in, in conjunction with Gremlins, actually. Yes. Uh, that whole rating. Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, they were masters of the universe at this point. They could do whatever they wanted, and they got the advisory board to actually make a new rating. And it was very much in part because of Temple of Doom. Right. And people sometimes think that Temple of Doom is the first PG-13 movie, and it's not. But it was very much inspired by this movie. And really, to your point... Just Steven Spielberg saying, hey, your rating system is broken. You need a new rating in between PG and R. And the MPAA heard that and was like, yeah, you're right. Which is crazy. I mean, I forget what the name of that documentary was that came out years ago about like how they handle the rating system. Right. They are arbitrary. It makes no logical sense. These guys are stuck in their ways. They do things the way they want to, and they don't change for anyone. And Spielberg is like, hey, you need to fix it. And they were like, okay, sir. Well, but remember, this was George Lucas and Steven Spielberg together. Sure. Right? This was Mr. Jaws, Mr. Star Wars, Mr. Empire Strikes Back, Mr. Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Mr. E.T., Mr. Return of the Jedi. There was no one, I think, in history... No two directors were that successful, director, producers, whatever you want to say, that often in right. that small of a time. So they were quite literally like running Hollywood. They could have done whatever they wanted. Right. This is very true. You know, uh, last week we talked about how uh, with the making of Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Steven Spielberg had always wanted to make a James Bond film. So in some ways he got his James Bond, the serial adventures film. But something that Spielberg has always talked about in his career is he has been obsessed with musicals. He always wanted to make a musical. You know, you mentioned uh, no one had ever had success. You did not mention he had a couple of big flops. Uh, 1941. Big flop. Yeah, yes. um, with John Belushi. It was a musical, kind of a comedy musical. And then 30 years later, he knocks it out of the park with West Side Story, for, which earns him a Best Picture nomination and, you know, nine other Oscar noms. 
But uh, this opening of this film is obviously Spielberg being like, all right, no one's financing a musical for me. Certainly not after my uh, World War II uh, musical flop. But I am going to open this film in a way that is completely different than what you're expecting. Because if you expected another boulder to fall right away, that's not happening. I also think it importantly set up the entire tone of the movie. Like everyone's like, oh, it's so dark. It's so, it is. It's a dark movie. We're going to get there probably, right? We're going to yeah, discuss oh yeah, sure. the heart ripping and the child enslavement and the this and the that. But that opening scene with the musical number that comes out of nowhere is very impressively done. And it's clearly a fantasy sequence because there's no way like physically that that could fit inside a nightclub and all of this stuff. It is just very clearly establishing don't take any of this very seriously we're just having fun here see it's really interesting that you say that because i remember as a kid really having a hard time wrapping my head around the part where they go into the dragon's mouth because the first part of the anything goes sequence is in a nightclub and the people who are in the club restaurant can watch the ladies dance and everything but then they go into this dragon's mouth and they do a whole tap dance number that no one who's in that restaurant <laughs> could see i think i said something similar in our um muppets take manhattan episode where they're on stage and they're doing a broadway musical and then they kind of run into the church for the wedding scene but it's like in a separate room and you can see all four walls and clearly the audience in the theater cannot see what's happening and as a kid that just blew my mind i'm like this doesn't make any sense i don't understand it and i do still think it is a little bit weird in muppets take manhattan and temple of doom oh there's no question it's weird but that's kind of the point it's like i'm doing whatever the hell i want here's a musical number it's ridiculous she's singing in chinese like guys just sit back I got this. And then the whole movie sort of like happens to you. <laughs> and then something else that they throw at you right when the film starts is that this film takes place in 1935. Now, why is it 1935 and not 1936 like the last film? Or rather 1937, 1938 since this film is being uh, filmed a few years later. And the reason they did this is because they kind of want to get around the Marion thing. You know, we don't really have to explain now, where's Marion? Why isn't she in this film? Because you know what? This took place a year before uh, he reunites with Marion in Nepal. That's basically what I've always thought, though, why they did it like this. No. It's not. I was reading about this and I literally Googled why is Temple of Doom a prequel? Because that very same question was bugging me. And George Lucas answered it. And he said it's because he didn't want the Nazis to be the villain again. He wanted to hmm. do something else other than Nazis, which I totally understand. And I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to not want the Nazis to be the villain but I don't understand why that makes it a prequel. It 100% should be a sequel. Sorry, I'm telling George Lucas how things should be. What a very typical nerd thing to do. But yeah, this movie can take place in 1937, the year after Raiders, and it wouldn't have anything to do with Nazis because it starts in China and then goes to India. And yeah, the Nazis were gaining power and influence in 1937 in Europe. I, I yeah. don't understand that reasoning at all, but I Googled it. I clicked on many links, and that's George Lucas's reasoning. It doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't make any sense because I don't think it's true. I think maybe he even forgot why, if that's a more recent one, uh, because everything you said, Al, is 100% true. The Nazis were also in power in 1935. It's just a weird thing to sure. not to say that that's what would write him out. Because maybe you want to have him in Europe, and then you have to make it 1925. There was a war between China and Japan around, I think, 1936. So that could have been why, that could have been why he wanted to avoid it, and that he forgot. And said, oh, I think it's because of the Nazis he's just forgetting. Perhaps because Shanghai was such an important sort of opening scene. By the way, yeah. did you read the story conference that I sent as homework. I skimmed it. It was like a 27-page PDF. And it is 27 pages of brilliance. So what I'm talking about is there was a story conference between George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, and uh, what's his head? Lawrence Kasdan. Lawrence Kasdan, thank you. Uh, in 1978, 
where they were discussing the whole character, the story for the first movie, ostensibly for the first movie, but they had so many ideas. A lot of them ended up in the other movies, uh, chief among them being this entire Shanghai sequence they were going to shove into the first movie as how he gets, like, I think, essentially the head, the staff piece or whatever. The the head piece of the staff. Yes, would be how he gets it. Basically, but yeah, so that so they just sort of transpose it into this. They came up with so much, too much movie for a movie, right? Essentially, but if you could find it online, it's very easy to find. But that story conference is fascinating, and it redeemed George Lucas in my eyes because up until I read it, I was like, well, Steven Spielberg is clearly the author and architect of the entire Indiana Jones. Everything, everything I like about it has got to be from Steven Spielberg, who's such a genius. And then I read the story conference, and it is clearly George Lucas's everything. Like the the character, the world, the reasoning behind everything came from him, really. And and Spielberg kind of informed it and colored it, but it was really him. And then, as you could imagine, Lawrence Kasdan came in and really sort of improved on all of that. But it's fascinating. Right. Well, Lawrence Kasdan really made it a story like George Lucas came up with the character and then Spielberg came up with the set pieces and like what the action things were going to be. And then Lawrence Kasdan turned that and made it into a actual screenplay for an actual movie. And Lawrence Kasdan did not write Temple of Doom. He felt it was too dark. He wasn't interested in it. He was working on The Big Chill, another movie that uh, we did on the podcast. So this movie was written by Willard Hook. I'm not sure how to pronounce that name. I don't either. And Gloria Katz, who uh, George Lucas worked with on American Graffiti. Yes. The darker tone is... Sometimes attributed to the fact that George Lucas was going through a divorce and Steven Spielberg was going through a breakup. He met uh, his future wife, Kate Capshaw, on set when they were making this movie, but they didn't get together right away. I think no. uh, Spielberg like got back together with the girlfriend that he broke up with and then they got married and then divorced. And then I think he married uh, Kate Capshaw in 89. So it was several years yes. later. They knew each other from this, but it wasn't like they fell in love instantly and started dating. Yes. A bone I have to pick with the Crystal Skull criticism is just very briefly, there's a part in the opening scene of that film where there's a nuclear explosion and Indiana Jones hides in a lead-lined fridge. It's kind of joked about as nuke the fridge. But my problem with the fandom is that the film franchise that it is, is a ridiculous ridiculous physics do not count and of all the four films i would argue perhaps indiana jones and temple of doom is the most ridiculous starting with the opening scene which goes completely wrong indy uh he thought it might go right you know simple exchange but if it didn't go wrong he had that friend of his uh the, the waiter that's the backup what he did not back up is calculating that jumping out of a 10-story building would happen to have 10 balconies from to fall through he also did not account that he'd be jumping with twice the weight with a second human mm-hmm. but you know that's the film that this is i have gripes with the fourth film but it's not nuke the fridge for being ridiculous because indiana jones is a ridiculous franchise when it comes to that stuff amen i completely agree i have the exact same take the kind of action that happens in indiana jones this isn't the french connection this is abbott and costello meets james bond essentially it's it's funny it's action they're silly by their very nature you're like that would actually never happen the the plane just, scene right just the is, next scene when they silly. jump out of a plane without however, parachutes with a raft however mythbusters proved that that could happen i thought they proved that it wouldn't work no i think they proved that it did work i believe we got to look this up we got we got to find out however several very ridiculous things happen in temple of dune including and most egregiously during the very exciting uh, roller cart sequence mine cart mine cart thank you at the end they completely jump the, the track, maybe 100-foot gap. Right. And they land perfectly on the other side and keep going. Oh, yeah, Donkey Kong Country I'm style. just saying, if you, if you want to apply the, the physics argument, you don't start with the nuking of the fridge. You start with at least this movie. I hear that, but I think that Temple of Doom 
really cranked that up, that element up more than in Raiders. The falling from the plane in the raft is way more cartoonish than anything that happens in Raiders. That is next level. Honestly, when I was a kid, it bothered me in Temple of Doom. It annoyed me. And I think that is considered one of the weaker elements of Temple of Doom. So then in Crystal Skull, when they were like, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take that kind of thing, which was already cranked up way too high, and we're going to crank it up even higher. It's like, why? Take the things that were the best of the Indiana Jones trilogy and use those, lean on those. Don't amplify the worst things and make them worse. So I think that is where the gripe comes from. Honestly, I have a lot of problems with the plane hijacking scene. Well, it's three main problems. One is that they fall out of a plane using an inflatable raft. That is ridiculous. Also though, before that, when you see the red line traveling, you know, like the Indiana Jones staple. Yeah, they're real far from Shanghai. <laughs> they go really far from Shanghai, and they stop to refuel. You see the red uh. line go into one city. I forget which city it is. And then they stop, and they keep going. Why? I understand why Lao Che wants to kill Indiana Jones. I get that part. But why would he go to this much trouble to do it in this exact way? Okay, I have one word for you. Yeah? Insurance fraud. <laughs> That's two words. <laughs> but good point. But as as an adult rewatching this movie, I'm like, oh, that's the only thing that makes sense. He has to. We has to argue like, oh, we lost fuel over Nepal or whatever, so that's why we had to cut bait. And his buddies will walk back. But that's the only thing. He's a businessman. He knows <laughs> what he's doing. Also, my third problem with this whole plane sequence is that after they fall from the plane onto the mountain in the raft, then they fall from the mountain into a river. That looks like a much bigger fall than the first fall from the plane. You know, from the plane to the snow, yes, that is a very large fall and probably they would instantly shatter their tailbones or whatever from the impact. But then when they go off of that cliff into the river, that's gotta be like twice the altitude, three times the altitude, maybe, I don't know. I agree with everything you're saying, however, these movies, this one in particular, are cartoons. It's just right. fun. Like, whoa, wouldn't that be fun? Oh, now I'm doing a toboggan ride. Oh, now I'm on a river. And then the joke of, hey, we're fine. And then he sees the waterfall. Like, that's the point. The point isn't like, hey, isn't this realistic? The point is, wouldn't this be fun if this was happening to you? This movie, I think, more than any of the other ones, captures that so so well just it's a thrill ride it's a theme park ride yes that is a movie and that's all it is and that and that's all i want from it and I, that is why i love it as much as i do right we head to this small village that's been decimated and uh, the, the crops are all gone we learn that the children are gone the stone is gone and indiana jones along with this total fish out of water uh when willie ford uh they had got Sorry, Willie Scott. Uh, they uh, Harrison Ford. Sorry. Yeah. Um, they head over to Pankow Palace, and the first scene in Pankow Palace. I mean, this is a scene that I remember being terrified of as a child. It's not a very good scene that is held up very well. Spielberg has kind of apologized for it. It's a kind of thing where. You know, I know what he was going for, but unfortunately, I think it made people think that this is what regular people in India would eat because there weren't like cult members at this dinner who were like, ah, this is my favorite soup and the best dessert is coming. And it's like, no, I, I don't think they're eating chilled monkey brains, but like, you know, to someone in the 1980s who doesn't have an internet. And is not necessarily going to run to the encyclopedia to learn about the cuisine of India, small villages specifically. You know, it's the kind of film that probably spread a, a few bad ideas. All right, so this is this is where we talk about the racial insensitivities, colonialism, white savior, like everything you could do wrong with telling this kind of story. They just jump right in almost as if they took a raft out of a plane they just <laughs> jumped right the hell in they did all of it my favorite uh movie critic 
living movie critic. Okay. Walter Chaw. I don't know if you guys read read his stuff. Film Freak Central, I believe .net. I don't think it's a .com. He also writes for Decider. Anyway, he has a very complicated, much like me, has a very complicated relationship to the movie, but for much different reasons. Because he was, I believe, you know, he's a Chinese American. He grew up in a Chinese household, and when Short Round came out as a character, he kind of suffered because his friends always asked him to do the the voice, and they mm-hmm. had just done that with I think Sixteen Candles, Pretty in Pink. Yeah, I think that was around Long the same Duck Dong. You know, like yeah. so it was this like sort of onslaught, and then Data the next year in Goonies, this onslaught of Asian American stereotypes that kind of made his life very difficult. Sure. Uh, and then when you're looking at the movie as an adult, you notice how. For instance, the English being the heroes at the end. Yeah. You know, like what if we did not learn in in American schools, podcast listeners, the horrors of, you know, English colonialism in India at all. So in 1984, we had no idea. They genuinely just looked like, oh, those guys look helpful. With a little bit of sensitivity, there were were other ways of doing that, which I think, you know, were completely ignored. I do like what Walter Shaw says about this movie, though. I'm just going to read it real quick. Please. He reviewed all the movies, when I believe, when they came out on Blu-ray. Okay. Temple of Doom is an unbelievably crass, unpleasant, horrific picture that trades at its currency the exact sensibilities it purported to import from 1930s Republic serials. Sledgehammer racist, gleefully misogynist, unapologetically crude, ignorant, vile in almost every respect. It's also machine-tooled in its efficiency as an action delivery system, and it uses its abominations as the means by which we're kept for the duration completely uncomfortable. Wow. Right. That is brutal, and there are valid points. I mean, the way that the eating gross-out stuff scene is constructed... Spielberg and Lucas were trying to cram in exposition in a way that wouldn't be boring. How do you do that? That is very, very difficult. We've talked about that on the podcast in countless episodes over the years. It's a hard thing to do. And the way that they did it was by showing eating icky food. So then you're getting the exposition, but you're also getting the gag at the same time. You can really see that. That is very crystal clear of what they were going for. Kind of like big picture, it's not a terrible idea, except for all of the racist shit and all of the stereotypes and and everything that's baked in, which is definitely a problem. And Bruce, you said the words white savior, that is a valid point. You 100% can make that criticism about this movie. Many people have with good cause. Also on the podcast, we've talked about many other white savior movies. And I think the thing that really gets me personally about the white savior movies we've talked about is when the white guy like learns from the black person or the Native American or whoever that racism is bad. And then they kind of like lecture the audience wagging their finger about it. That really just makes me want to well, you know- barf. To that point, this movie doesn't do that. Indiana Jones learns jack shit by the end of it. <laughs> that's kind of my point. And that's a very weird kind of like argument in its defense. And I realize that. I think really it's just kind of for my personal preferences. Like that particular variety of white savior movie is the most offensive to me. But look, I mean, the criticism about Temple of Doom, you can't argue it. It is definitely there. My problem with uh, these two scenes, I don't think there's any reason you need these British at the end. They fire a couple bullets, but he could have just gotten away from them uh, otherwise. Like You just didn't really need them. And secondly, I think that you could have done the Indian scene. Just didn't have to be fake. You know, oh, people are eating live snakes cut out of a pregnant snake. You know, there's a delicacy in America called sweetbreads. If someone presented it as, ah, the thyroid gland from a young calf, like someone would be like, that's disgusting. You describe what a sausage is. I mean, it's totally disgusting. We ground up the lips and the these part. We took out the intestines, flushed them out with water, stuffed it all in there, and you know, there's a sausage. I mean, to, you could have done something gross without doing something weird here that would be wrong. To quote another, I believe, 1984 movie, The Great Outdoors. Lips and assholes. It's all lips and assholes. Uh, but this side point. But I think what you're describing would have actually been more racist. Because then you're saying, like, Indian food is disgusting. 
Like, that, that's what I mean about, like, the almost, like, honesty of this movie. It's, like, they're trying to just give you sensations. And the default on their end is that they're not considering the implications of the delivery of those things. Right. They're very clear. Like, I just want to gross you out. And it works. That scene is so memorable. People have been talking about it for 40 years now. Yes. I, I still say you can make a comedic thing about fish out of water. It could be anything that people that are not used to. You mean we're going to eat oxtail? You don't need the eyeballs. You don't need something that's just so comedically stupid. But I agree. It, it's also just not needed, this scene. You could have had the whole scene with this nice-looking prime minister and this lovely young prince, uh, well-spoken, and totally get fooled by it later. It, it's just a piece of comedy that doesn't work. That, I think that's the worst part. I think they're really going for comedy. It's not funny. And yeah, it does have the unfortunate side effect of also being, you know, somewhat racist. And, you know, speaking of things that are designed to gross you out and elicit a very strong reaction, this movie's other probably most infamous moment is when Volaram, the cult leader, while doing a human sacrifice, reaches into a guy's chest and pulls out the heart. It's really freaky. It's designed to make everyone in the audience want to put their hands over their heart, cover their chest, just in case, you know, not that someone in the movie theater is coming after them and going to grab their heart, but it's that terrifying and also silly and cartoony, but you understand that this is a cult, this is a religious thing, and after watching Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know that in this cinematic universe, religions are true, at least sometimes, and if someone believes in a certain deity or god or whatever, they might be able to do some powerful stuff. When you guys saw this as a kid, as kids, did it terrify you? Were there nightmares in the Edwards and Brief households? It more confused me. Okay, why is that? Because I was like, well, he doesn't have a heart. How is he still alive being lowered into the fire? And then, you know, it was like over time, I was like, oh, I guess it's magic? Absolutely terrifying. And I love the fact that you said the other terrifying part uh, after the uh, snake eating scene. This was not the scene I necessarily thought you were talking about. I thought you were going to talk about the scene with the booby trap and Willie and the bugs, which is absolutely terrifying in a more realistic way. I understand getting your heart ripped out is more disgusting and terrifying but i don't really fear that however i yes the answer is yes i absolutely thought that was scary in 1984 but the bug scene this is the scene where kate capshaw is by far the best because she's a refined uh, musician or you know the, the broadway actress kind of thing there's no real payoff for that except in this scene because it's even more terrifying for her because she doesn't even want to touch a bug and the poor woman has to like reach in a that of just the most disgusting things. I mean, what that poor character must have actually touched is absolutely terrifying. This feels like an organic moment to mention my appreciation for Willie Scott. Okay. Okay. A much maligned character in the Indiana Jones mythos. Okay. The complaint that she screams throughout the entire movie. I posit that she is probably the most realistic character. We all like to think... We would be Indiana Jones. Right. <laughs> we would be Willie Scott. We would be screaming. We would be complaining. We'd be saying, like, I want to go back to the city. That would be us. Fair. Gentlemen, I'm sorry, but it's true. For 90% of the audience, that would be us. Yes, she's a little dramatic. She's a little, like, you know, ratcheting it up. It's just kind of her personality. But it's nothing that's, like, completely out of, out of the question. Plus... In ways, she's just as tough as, as Marion. Like, she's not, she doesn't take any of Indiana Jones' shit. She's not like, oh, he has to be, you know, he's a, he's a misogynist bastard in this movie. He treats her like garbage. Right. And granted, at the end, there's that whip scene with the thing and the, the kiss and all that. But, like, right. you know, I have a reappreciation for her now. Like, actually looking at her, at her as a person and as a character in this movie, not just like this screaming sort of like foil to Indiana Jones that's, just there in the background like she actually has some agency although you know she she does end up doing whatever Indiana Jones asks including reaching into a bug infested hole to save Indiana Jones which by the way that entire sequence is brilliant it is and that is a line that I quote out of context obviously 
somewhat regularly of we are going to die. I mean, that delivery is perfect. We were talking a little bit last week about how Harrison Ford is kind of an underrated comedic actor. Like oh, people 100%. don't people don't think of him that way, but he actually can be really yes. goddamn funny. And also just talking about the screams, which you're right, she does get maligned as people just say, oh, all Willie does is scream. And there is some truth to that. Also, though, just in general, screaming is hard. And um, mm -hmm. there are plenty of actors and actresses who scream in movies and they're not that great at it. Kate Capshaw does one hell of a scream. Great she, scream. I mean, it really is a grade A scream. And maybe that isn't the most amazing compliment for her as an actress. I mean, I really don't know her from many other things. I know we saw her in Space Camp. I can't really think of many other movies that she's been in. But she's a good screamer. To her credit, once she got married to Steven Spielberg, I believe they they believe they had children of their own, but then they also adopted, like, I think they have seven kids. I don't know how many of them are adopted, but I think she kind of devoted her life to that. Right. So, uh, screaming in a different way. <laughs> she point. does act, though, here and there. She does pop up in things, so she's not completely retired. Yeah, she's better than people give her credit for. Kate Capshaw, you're all right in my book. Aw, I'm sure she's happy to hear that. Yes. She, she is a big listener of the show. Yeah, obviously. Obviously. That's why we're doing this. <laughs> um, let me ask you about the end of the film. Uh, there's this climactic showdown on this suspension rope drawbridge and Indy realizing there really is no escape and he really only has one option, which is to cut the bridge in half and hope for the best. Most of the uh, bad guys fall off. I'm not quite sure, how does he beat Mulram at the end? Now, this is what I think happens. Gumption, the, James. Uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the three stones, when brought together, sort of glow uh, for whatever reason. And I guess they get hot. Yep. And I guess they burned out of the bag. And did Mulram just get burned and go, just go, ow, and basically fall down? Yes. Is that basically what happened? Okay. Yes. The thing that I think is inconsistent, the three stones, whenever they're together, they start glowing, except for a very long time, they have all been in Indiana Jones's satchel right together, and they're not glowing, and they're not hot. Well, they were chanting. He yes, uh, Indiana Jones does make some kind of chant. And I think it was similar to the reason why he didn't get killed by the Ark at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Something about purity or something, because... The Sankara stones didn't burn him, but it did burn the bad guy. Like, they're almost not sentient necessarily, but the power of them is a positive power, and clearly Mola Ram's a bad guy, so they were like, we'll burn you, but not him. You, you do also see it glowing when Mola Ram has it. He throws it up, and then by the time Indy catches it, it has stopped glowing. Yes, that is about a fraction of a second, but in that time, it has cooled down enough I guess. That's fair. And, you know, I mean, there had to be some reason why uh, Harrison Ford could defeat the character played by uh, Amrish Puri. Uh, sorry if I mispronounced his name. I thought he played uh, more on Fantastic. But this guy is an imposing character. He's, he's huge. And so in the same way that Indiana Jones couldn't beat that, uh, that shaved head guy by the airplane, it took a propeller to beat that guy. I'm glad that there was some reason why he was able to beat Moron. And so I, that was just my one question there. Shaved head guy makes an appearance in Temple of Doom, doesn't he? He does. He does. He is the guy who uh, Indy beats on the um, conveyor belt thing where his uh, headscarf gets pulled under. Oh no, poor guy. <laughs> it, it was supposed to be a recurring gag where in every Indiana Jones movie, Indiana Jones fights and kills that guy. He is in Last Crusade. I think they, they edited uh, his scene way down. It's not the big drag down fight that it was in the first two movies and i think he was uh he had passed away in real life before they filmed crystal skull which is kind of an interesting running gag although in line with the racist stuff he was wearing brown face in oh, this yeah. movie so that part's not great even though that is an exciting fight sequence and he's all he's not the only one wearing brown face <laughs> this is true there are there are a few uh white actors wearing brown face speaking of which the guy who gets his heart ripped out on a rewatch, kind of looks like Michael Richards. 
<laughs> I don't kind think it is. A resemblance. Although, you know, speaking of random people being in this movie, I did not realize that it was Dan Aykroyd mm-hmm. who, like, escorts them on to Lao Che's air freight uh, plane in the beginning. In my defense, he's on screen for, like, four seconds and, like, not really prominent. He's kind of in the background. Nope. You don't have a clear shot of his face, and he doesn't sound at all like Dan Aykroyd. He's putting on his fake British accent. But I did not know that. Yeah. I was and today years old when I found that the out. The question is, why? What the hell did that bring to anybody? Was that a favor? <laughs> I think it was probably just, like, a, a thing of, like, hey, Steve, can I be in your new movie? Yeah, sure, Danny. Yeah. The moral is he was in the top two highest grossing movies of 1984. There you go. So good on Mr. Aykroyd. To bring it back to my friend Walter Chaw, he of the complicated relationship with Temple of Doom and specifically Short Round, he wrote also about how he, as an adult, went back and watched it and his wife helped him to realize like he's actually the best character in the movie in that he's he's the purest character. He's He's the one that you're really rooting for. He's the hero. He saves Indiana Jones. Mm-hmm. He's constantly upbeat. He is this just positive force throughout the whole movie that sort of like bounces you through. He's the heart of the movie, really. Yeah. Yes. And as a kid, it's kind of surprising when you think about it. Either you wanted to be Indiana Jones or you wanted to be short round. And there was like sort of like no in between. Like, oh, I'd be short round. And I don't know if anybody else felt this way, but out of the Goonies, didn't we want to be Data? Um, I don't Who's know. Who's better than Data? Absolutely. I mean, Data had gadgets. Yeah. Yeah, but I think I wanted to be one of the guys who kissed the girl. Sorry. Yeah, there's that. <laughs> but I hear what you're saying. And I mean, yeah, you're 100% right. He is the heart of the movie. He is the character that kids are going to cling to and cheer for. And in a movie where they might very well be terrified by... Right. The heart ripping out and the eating of the bugs and the touching of the bugs and all of these horrible things, they're going to like Short Round because he's awesome. Right. And who didn't want to be in 1984, speaking for myself, Indiana Jones' sidekick. Sure. Absolutely. Right. You can you can yell at him. You can cheat in cards with him and, you know, get away with it. I mean, that's awesome. I love also, while I was watching this, uh, I mentioned him earlier, there's this waiter in the scene with Lao Shea, and as he gets shot by Lao Shea's uh, accomplice, he falls in Indy's arms and he goes, we've had so many adventures together, but this is where adventures and I go first to the greatest adventure, you know, death. Short Round's not his first sidekick. Mm-mm. This guy, you know, the, these novels that I'm looking at in front of me, there could be a dozen novels with that waiter character. And obviously he's in these uh, Trusted Companion. And I love that small little piece because today there's no way they would put that in and not have a Disney Plus series ready for the early adventures of that guy. I would watch it. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like they would put that in specifically today. Don't forget to subscribe. So that's almost an outdated thing, but I love that's there. Can I go on my rant about how they were going to make an Indiana Jones TV show for Disney Plus and now they're not going to and how angry that makes me? And by the way, the argument that fans specifically of Indiana Jones have like, there should not be any more Indiana Jones movies, blah, blah, blah. What a bunch of horseshit. All right, you guys, you guys, mm-hmm. the entire purpose of this character, this world, this everything is serialized adventures, okay? This is not Lawrence of Arabia, okay? This is not a one-and-done movie. This is not even a trilogy. This is not The Godfather. This is supposed to be a silly character that goes around, has cool adventures that you want to watch over and over and over and over again. There should have been 25 Indiana Jones movies already, Mm -hmm. not five. Right, like James Bond, you can replace them. You're finding Atlantis, you're finding the blank treasure in Antarctica, you're finding some Native American things, South America, Asia. It's it's endless possibilities. You know, perhaps it's a good thing there haven't been 25 films because, you know, pretty much... Hard uh, disagree. (laughs) Well, who knows how it would have been, but I agree that it should not be... It's it's a series that uh, not necessarily should be made more, but could be made more if done well. I think the problem isn't that... It only should have been three. I think the problem was that they stopped for 20 years and then picked it up. 
I think had they kept going and there had been one every two, three, four years, I think that would have been a completely non-existent argument that no one would have made. But because of the very, very long gap, that was why it was like, well, this was a resting dog that maybe you should have let lie. It's different to say you shouldn't have continued it 20 years later than, oh, you shouldn't have continued it two or three years later. Right. You know what I mean? I, I guess I guess my problem is, is that they're saying, like, they just don't make anymore. It's perfect the way it is. And it's like, that is sort of dishonest to the very fabric of what why they exist and why the people who are saying that like these movies in the first place. You go to these movies to live vicariously, to have fun temple raiding adventures and get in and out and that's it why not have a thousand of them but to your point that the thing that you like is the serial nature of them the thing about the serials from the 30s and 40s and whatever was that you got a new one every week correct so if you're gonna let it lie dormant for 20 years then you are going to hear the argument of why now Well, I mean, James Bond went dormant for a long time. Sometimes you get, you know, the Timothy Dalton ones after a break. Never that long. You're right. It wasn't that long. But sometimes, you know, after dormant years, you get a sequel to Blade Runner, which is great. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Same thing if they ever make an Indiana Jones film or series. Bottom line, is it good or not? I, yes. I, I can almost promise you if they make a really well done film, it's not going to be, oh, because we're just so loyal to only Harrison Ford. We refuse to watch these that's, Chris Pine ones. That's the part is. that confused the hell. And by the way, if Chris Pratt had a, had become Indiana Jones, that would have been proof of, of all proofs that we live in the the worst timeline. <laughs> I did say Chris Pine. But, I know. Yeah. I'm just saying there was a Chris Pratt talking about Indiana Jones. Yes. He could not hold a lighter to Harrison Ford. And by the way, Steven Spielberg, I, I only recently realized the reason that I love his movie so much is because who who does entertainment better? Just pure entertaining. Like That's why Jaws is so great. It's not because it's scary, and it is scary. It's not because it's funny, and it is funny. It's not because it's a good adventure, and it is a good adventure. It's because it's all of those things. It is constantly entertaining. Every scene. Just like Temple of Doom, but for a completely different reason. Well, Bruce, I am going to ask you, as our very special guest, do you think Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom stands the test of time? So it's a complicated answer. I feel it does not stand the test of time culturally. Okay. In fact, it's awful from that perspective. Much like anything from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s has aged awfully. Just like the lack of consideration and the, you know, out and out misogyny and racism, etc. However, as a movie... This is one of the most entertaining movies ever made. Period. If you're able to overcome all of that stuff, I feel like I'm, I'm, I don't want to say immune to it, but definitely inured to it because I've grown up with it. It's like part of my, the fabric of my personality. I can't separate myself from it, though I've always loved it and I always will love it, kind of. So maybe I'm not the best person to ask. But, but if you even just look at it as just craftsmanship level, it is, as Walter Shaw said, just a machine and it does its job better than most movies of this kind. I would say yes, it stands the test of time. All right, uh, that's one for yes. Alan, what do you think? Does it stand the test of time? I mean, I largely agree with what you're saying, Bruce. This movie does have flaws. There are things that annoy me about it, looking at it from a modern lens. There are things that bother me about it when I watched it as a kid. Like I was saying about, uh, you know, where they go in the opening dance montage and like how they survive from falling on the raft. I thought that was BS as a kid. However, this movie is just really entertaining. It is like the minecart scene. This movie is a roller coaster ride and it's really, really fun. It's just a fun movie to watch. I enjoy the ride. And I understand why some people don't. And I understand why it's a little too dark for some people. I get that. All of the criticisms about this movie that I've read, that I've heard, I think are valid. But I really, really enjoy it. 
this is a very silly thing, but because of this movie, I thought Lazy Susans were the coolest thing in the world. Oh, yeah, me too. Right? Like, just in that opening scene, I was like, every table should have one of those. Those are so cool. I think the fact that it's a prequel is really, really dumb. I don't think it makes any sense. I honestly sort of think that, like, maybe it was a mistake that maybe Lucas forgot and he, he meant to write 1937 and then he just had to come up with the whole thing about the Nazis as oh, a retcon. On. I don't know. It also doesn't make sense that it's a prequel because it makes the gag less funny when he yes. goes to, like, pull out the gun and shoot the swordsman. It's well, way less funny if this happens first. I was going to ask this question. Yeah. Is it less funny or more funny? Because... It makes less sense, but does that mean that he learned from it for Raiders of the Lost Ark? Like, I gotta keep this thing loaded. The joke works funnier the way it worked for us, the audience, where we know that it works and then it doesn't. If it doesn't work and then you learn a lesson, yeah, that's a thing that happens in life and in reality all the time. But comedically, no, it works funnier if it works and then it doesn't. So that gag doesn't land. Also, the whole arc, sorry, pun intended, of Raiders of the Lost Ark is that Indiana Jones learns that supernatural things are real and that, you know, the arc isn't just a ghost story. Its power is real. And if he experienced all of this stuff in Temple of Doom first— he would know that there are supernatural things that exist in the world. I do hate that it's a prequel. That just gets no, under I my agree. skin. It doesn't make any sense at all. However, you could say that he was he learned that this particular brand of Kali-based dark <laughs> Indian magic was real. And then he was like, whoa, Christian magic is real too? Wow. I mean, I guess. But um, o- overall, I do love I guess would that be Jewish? It's Jewish. Jewish, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I wasn't going to correct you, but yes, it would be Jewish. But... um. Overall, I do enjoy Temple of Doom, and I think it does stand the test of time. James, what do you think? Uh, I think it stands the test of time. I think, for the reasons that I'm strongly in favor of, I think Indiana Jones, mostly from this film, it's not realistic. It's like Star Wars to Star Trek. Whenever anything happens in Star Trek, Data or Geordi or whoever the engineer will be like, ah, because there was uh, something in the warp core which put the neutrinos in Star Wars. They're not going to try to explain it. Lightspeed just means shut up. Like, that's what it means. That's what these films are. Something I always thought about this one was that it was very enclosed. Like, it was just this small little, like, human sacrifice cult affecting this village. And I'm like, okay, I mean, I'm glad he stumbled into it. But, uh, you know, it's not like uh, the Nazis were going to take over the world. But there's a great line that Mulram says. I'd never heard it before. But he says, first we will destroy the British, then the Muslim God, then the Hebrew God, and then finally the Christian God. Which is interesting because they're all saying God. I thought that was interesting. I never really knew that the uh, that, that this uh, cult was trying to take over the world. So I thought that was cool. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, the, the, the parts that were insensitive. Um, you know, I think overall, it's just a great adventure. It's not as good as Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm. And I have not seen Last Crusade in many years, but I always remember this not being as good as Last Crusade. And this is the film that I always remembered being on all the time on HBO. So this is the one I saw so much. And like this was the one I had the VHS tape of in the late 80s, not Raiders. So we just watched this one a lot. And uh, to this day, whenever I kind of like outsmart someone a little bit, like with a little prank, the equivalent of like, hey, James, sit down. And I see there's a whoopee cushion there. I'll basically get out of the way and go... Nice try, Lao Shea. <laughs> like, I love that line. And it's a flawed film. It's not his best. It's not Indy's best. But it stands the test of time. It's still a great adventure. Very scary, though. I, I do think it's... it's. Uh, I was very scared as a kid. But, uh, yeah, that, that's three for three, Al. We think uh, this film stands the test of time. Very, very good. And in order for Molaram to take down all of the other major world religions... He needs all five of the Shankar stones. Right. That, that's what the kids are enslaved. They're looking for the other two because they have three. One they got from the village. I think maybe he mentions where he found some of the others. But 
I was thinking a great ending for this movie would have been if they get back to the village and they have all the kids and there's life in the village again and he hands the, the shaman the rock and the shaman goes, oh, this isn't ours. Yeah. <laughs> uh, ours had a scratch on the yeah, bottom. Can you, you get that one? Uh, yeah, we just, we really became attached to like that specific that one. That is a great point. Um, but Bruce, thank you so much for coming and joining us. And oh, please stop stealing thanks. my Indiana you Jones novels. About? You're what? very clearly shoving them under no, your shirt. My shirt. This is how my chest looks. <laughs> you can borrow them. That's fine. You're more than welcome thanks to them. Thanks for having me. Come back again, Bruce. Tango please. and Cash. That's all Can't yours. Wait. The Russian maniac directed action movie with Kurt Russell and. Sylvester Stallone talking about dick sizes with their guns. I can't wait. Uh, I don't think I've ever seen it. None of that sounds familiar. Oh, I've seen it. And it is such an action 80s film. Why is yours bigger than mine? Genetics. Come on. (laughs) That's the 80s. In a a nutshell. Ah, nutshell. Uh, Uh, You're welcome to come back anytime for any movie. Okay. Tango and Cash sounds great. Thank you again for joining us, Bruce. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Next week, everyone, we are going to conclude our trilogy of episodes about Indiana Jones when we talk about Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade with our friends Matt Kroll and Shahir Dowd from the only podcast about movies. That's going to be a really fun episode. I'm really looking forward to that. Until then, we want to hear from you guys. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us at testoftimepodcast at gmail.com. Share your indie stories with us. Were you petrified of Temple of Doom when you were a kid? Did it freak you out? Did you have nightmares? Were you afraid of bugs? Did you hold your hand over your chest? Did you love short round? Did you hate short round? Tell us. We want to know. And we'll see you next time, everybody. Bye.